Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1. And remember, as we study these uh, chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is trying to tell us all that is under the sun without uh, recognizing God's blessings in the matter for our lives is all vanity and vexation of spirit. To try to just uh, set goals of riches or to try to find find our satisfaction in just pleasures or go to the extreme in any direction to be satisfied apart from God is all vanity and vexation of spirit. It's like chasing the wind. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, he turns to oppression. And here's observations of different wrongs that we find in this chapter. And first uh, three verses is concerning oppression. And verses 4 through 7 is concerning envy of fools and the rich. And verses 7 through 12 is concerning the miser, a man that just lays up money for himself. And then the last section is concerning popularity, verses 13 through 16. I'll give you those again. The first three verses concerning oppressions. The verses 4 through 7 concerning envy of fools and of the rich. Verses 7 through 12 concerning the miser. And verses 13 through 16 concerning popularity. And by the way, not any of these things will bring lasting uh, uh, satisfaction to any of us. Let's look at verse 1 now. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 1. It says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions, all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power. The powerful, the mighty, oppress many times the poor and the underdog, so to speak. And on their side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Now concerning oppressions, we find that uh, oppressions of any kind of injury to a man that he can receive, either in his person or his property or his good fame. And many endure all kinds of oppression from others, especially those that are in high places and those that are in power and are able to put uh, other people under their their power. Uh, we've seen it in times past in history. We see it in in our day and hour in which we live. Usually it's the poor that are oppressed and the people that are helpless that are oppressed. And you know, the Lord is concerning about, concerned about them. But it says, but they had no comforter. There's no one that will take their side. And yet we know that as far as God is concerned, that he is our comforter and that he will take the side of all that are oppressed. And he tells that he will take the side of all that are oppressed. In fact, uh, one scripture says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you, as we quoted this morning. Now then, in verse 2, it says, Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. In other words, he's looking at it from the viewpoint of, if in this life only all we have is oppression and being put down and, and not enjoying things of life, and the rich and the powerful uh, ruling over other people, then sometimes the the happy estate of the dead that are already gone is far better. You know, Paul says, if it, in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If our hope was only in this life, but we have hope in Christ, 
now and hereafter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Because the living would yet have to endure oppression. The dead would already be relieved of it. You know, Paul said in one place that having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And if we just have to endure oppression in this life, and pain and suffering, and being put down all the time, well then it would be better to be with the Lord. And then it says in verse 3, Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. In other words, like Job of old said, you know, Job says it's better that I'd never been born. Well, if, if the only thing we had in life was to endure suffering and pain and oppression and affliction, and there was no good side to life, and the joys and the pleasures and the things of God did not outweigh that, then the state of not being born would be uh, uh, preferable, wouldn't it? But we're thankful that life is not that way. But the preacher is showing us the vain side of life and the dark side of life and showing us all the things that, that really cause us problems and that we have to deal with day by day. Now then, verses 4 through 7, uh, concerning envy of fools and of the rich. Notice what verse 4 says. And he shows us here in this verse the vanity of selfish toil. Here's a successful man. He says, Again, I considered all travail and every right work that is that... For this, for this, a man is envied of his neighbor. A man works, and he works hard, and he's successful. He says, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. And then he goes to the right, the reverse. A man that will not work at all. The verse 5 says, The fool foldeth his hands together, and eateth his own flesh. Here's two extremes in life. One that just labors all the time. One works hard and tries to get ahead. And this is the vanity of selfish toil just to store it up. And then the other person that wanted to work it all. The fool folded his hands together and eateth his own flesh. And then in verse 6, Solomon sums up and, and reflects upon the previous verse. And he says, Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. So we're to avoid, avoid both of these extremes. Avoid the extreme of saying, all I'm after is selfish gain, and I'll be satisfied. Or the fool says he saw that. The fool saw all this man, this man working and successful, and he thought, well, he can't eat any more than I can. He enjoys life only to eat and drink and be merry, and so I'll just sit back and I'll get what I can, and I'll, I won't work like he does. But Solomon tells us to avoid both of these extremes. Go right down the middle, work and, in, and, and enjoy the blessings that God has given you from the toil of your own hands and be thankful for them. And you know there's a happy medium, isn't there? The successful man and then the fool is considered. And he says, better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full. How, how much you want, you want both hands full or one hand full? You see... Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full, all you can get and grab, with what? With travail and vexation of spirit. Have you ever seen folks that just try to get and get and get and they're never happy? And it seems like the more successful they are, the more that they, they, the least they enjoy life. And there is a happy medium to all this. And uh, Solomon is trying to get us to consider it. And verses... 7 through 12, he shows us how some are misers that don't even have family to leave their, what they make, what they earn 
uh, to uh, for an inheritance. They have no one to leave it to, and yet they're misers, and they won't even enjoy the blessings of, of their labor. Look at verse 7. Then I returned and saw, and saw vanity under the sun. I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. One man alone. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. He has no family at all. Yet there is no end of all his labor. He just keeps on working. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. He just keeps on saving it up. There is never enough the excess of foolishness. He saves it up. Neither is his eye satisfied. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor? He does not even think about who he's going to leave it to. How? For whom, for whom do I labor? It's kind of senseless, isn't it? For a man all alone to make all that he can make and then grasp for more. And he has no one, no neighbor, no friend, no family, no heirs to leave it to. And yet he's still grasping for more. Do you want to live that kind of life? Not me. I don't want to live that kind of life. For whom do I labor and bereave my soul for of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. It sure is. Now look at verses, verse 9. Beginning with verse 9. I want you to notice it says, Two are better than one. The value of a friend, because they have a good reward for their labor. It says, For if they fall... The one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him. Isn't it the value of a good friend that when you fall, that that you'll have a neighbor to lift you up. You'll have someone that cares about you. And, uh, you know, the Bible teaches us that the steps of a good man in the Psalms are ordered by the Lord. It says, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Why? For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. So if a man falls, he's not... The word there really means stumble so as to fall that he will not even hit the ground because the Lord will uphold him with his hand. You ever seen, I know you've seen the picture many times of a little uh, boy or girl and their hand being held tightly by the father or mother uh, going across the street and they hold on for dear life. They don't want to let that child loose because of the danger of the traffic or whatever. Or maybe in other circumstances where they hold on. Maybe there's a cliff or a, a bad place in the road or whatever. Or if they're out on foot, they hold on. And uh, the Lord holds on to us to keep us from falling into danger. And it's not our holding on to Him that's so so important. We should hold on to the Lord with faith. But it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. And I like the Lord's strong hand that will hold me up in times of trouble. And then the value of a wife and family. Again, if two lie together, they, uh, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. The family unit. And it says, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you have a family that sticks together, that's threefold cord. You know, they talk about family ties. They talk about... Uh, the fact that uh, this family is closely knit together. And if they are, they can withstand all kinds of problems that they face. You know, I was thinking of all of these people in the Northwest now. It would take a good family to undergo some of those floods and things they're undergoing and see the water coming through the windows of your house and then know that when you, it's all over, you've got to stick together, you've got to get in there and clean up, you've got to rebuild or redo. I mean, 
a lot of that disturbs uh, some families so much that they just break up. They don't have any uh, hope left. But you can always come through all the storms of life. It doesn't make any difference how bad they are. And many of us have been through some of the storms. So uh, this family unit is very important. And if you have a family, we'll hold them close together. And then verse 13 says, Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Popularity. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. He says, I considered all the living which walk under the sun with a second child that shall stand up in his stead. He says, There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this, this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. It doesn't make any difference how important you are in this life or how popular you are. One of these days it's going to all come to an end. Popularity soon passes away. Many people have a, a good standing for a while and then all of a sudden it's gone. We've seen that in politics. We've seen that in uh, uh, ministers that come and uh, fall from time to time. We've seen it in society in every direction. You've seen it in rising stars and then they're falling stars. Even in the sports world, don't we? And that's very evident there in this day and hour. All right, let's look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 is exhortations. Exhortations in verses 1 through 7 is concerning worship and vows. Worship and vows. Verses 8 and 9 is concerning uh, extortions. And verses 10 through 17, the vanities of wealth, and then the conclusion is verses 18 through 20. So exhortations, and in these exhortations, the first thing we deal with is worship and vows. You might, if you were going to title this chapter, you might say, fear God and keep your vows. There's two important things. Fear of God means to reverence God. doesn't mean it's sometimes to be afraid, though God is mighty and powerful, and we should fear in His presence in both ways. Not only reverence, but we should fear His mighty power. And uh, remember back in the Old Testament that the children of Israel, when they were receiving the law, they stood afar off and they did exceedingly fear. They were afraid of God's power and the smoke on the mountain and the law was being given and so there's times, there's been many times in times past when men were brought to fear God for his power. But then the word fear also means to reverence God. And so in worship, we need to fear God or reverence God. And then if we promise any vows, if we make any promises, we're to keep those promises. Keep your vows. Now, let's notice verse 1. It says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Keep thy foot. Be more ready to hear, for they consider not that they do evil. In other words, guard your steps in the house of God. Be careful about worship. Don't make promises that you cannot keep. Watch your walk as well as your talk. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Even in worship, people do evil. That's a sad thing, isn't it? To think you come to the house of worship and do evil. Well, why do you do evil? If you uh, let your mouth spout off quickly and hurriedly and do not hear what God wants you to hear, and you just say, I'm going to do this and that and the other, and you make a lot of promises to God, and you have no uh, 
ability, maybe you have an intention to keep, but no ability to keep them. No power to do all that you say you will do. And we're going to find a whole lot about that as we study the rest of the verses. Notice it says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Do not be... In other words, weigh your words before you utter anything before God. Let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. There's a vast distance between you and God. God is a heavenly being. We're earthly creatures. And when you approach His altar, you should not be too hasty to make promises. You weigh your words. You make sure that you know what you're talking about. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon the earth. In other words, there's a great gulf between. There's a great distance between us and God. And God is a heavenly one, and we are earthly ones. And therefore, we must realize that we need to bow before Him and be uh, honest and sincere about our worship. Thou upon the earth, therefore let thy words be few. doesn't say let thy words be many. doesn't say let your, your words run off with the mouth just without any consideration or thinking about what you're saying. It says, therefore let thy words be few. In the ver- next verse, it says, For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. What does a dream come from many times? It says the business of the day, the multitude of business. Have you ever seen folks that just lived on dreams? Say They just dream one thing and dream another. And a lot of times they they even feel that these are so divinely inspired, they pass them on to other folks. You know, Jeremiah warns about that. Some of the false prophets of Jeremiah's day. Let me read in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23. It says this, verse 26. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of deceit of their own heart, which which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they... Tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. He says there's prophets. Jeremiah says there's prophets that have dreams and they tell, they they forget my name and they tell uh, their dreams, they tell to every man to his neighbor and they've forgotten my name for Baal. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. God says his word is better spoken than a dream told. He that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. He says, what is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? In other words, the the dream is like the chaff, and God's word is like the wheat. He said, is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal... Uh, my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith. They use their tongues and say, He saith. They attribute their dreams to God and say, God said this, you know. I've heard a lot of folks this day and hour that say, You know, I was standing there and God told me this and I told, and I told God that. And you know, God, just like they stand there talking to each other like you and I are talking. You know, I kind of scratched my head a little bit about that. Uh, you know, God says He hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. His Word is, is, spoke, is spoken to us. And His Word, uh, uh, Job of old says, I have esteemed the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. And God's Word enlightens us. And so the prophet that says, oh, uh, God said this in a dream to me, 
And therefore, you know, listen to what I say. I say, well, look, come back to a little something, a little more substantial. And it said in this passage of Scripture, a dream cometh through the multitude of business. Look at that verse 3. Maybe he ate too late and maybe he had too much business on his mind. He might have had a hamburger with onions on it. Or he could have been so busy about all of his business that his mind was muddled with all the figures of the day and the prophets of the day. It says, A dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. That's verse 3. Now he says, let's, uh, you have Ecclesiastes 5 verse 3. Now look at verse 4. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. When, when in distress and difficulty men are apt to promise much to God. Have you ever seen people that were in distress or had a great difficulty or sickness? And I remember one lady over in the hospital. I mentioned it to you before, I think. And it was long about October, I think, or maybe the early part of November, but around, I believe it was in October. And her whole family had been sick, and they were in the hospital, and her husband was having all kinds of problems. And she says, Brother Joyce, and I had prayer with her, professed Christian person, and I didn't doubt her profession, but it's just, you know, when you get away from God, well, a lot of things happen. But on the other hand, what she said, she says, Brother Joyce says, after the first of the year, now look, you're talking about two or three months. I'm going to get all my family in church. I thought, well, what about next week when you get out of the hospital? Why don't you start now? You know, delay is dangerous, isn't it? You just keep on and putting off. And as far as I know, and, and I very definitely remember they didn't get in church after the first of the year. And as far as I know, they're not even in church now. And they go on their merry, everyday way. They do, just keep on doing the things and... Uh, this particular family's got a lot of sickness even now, but and I'm not saying the sickness is the cause of it. But don't don't I don't want to get legalistic or judgmental. Don't misunderstand me. But they're not in church, and uh, by the way, the husband is almost uh, dead now, and he's got emphysema real bad, and I, I don't think he'll make it very long. In fact, the last I heard of the family, Jan was waiting on him. Remember, you remember the man up there close to Brother Walker? Okay. That's the family. And bless their hearts, they, they just... And of course, it ended in divorce, separation in the family. It ended in sickness on every hand and, and a lot of bad things. And I'm not saying... I'm not trying to take a legalistic point of view or anything. I'm just saying that people make promises. Here was what she said. After the first of the year, we're going to get all our family in church. And I think she may have met, really meant well at the moment when she said that. But you know, just making a vow, it says... Uh, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Look at verse 5. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, don't make a promise, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. It's better for you not to even promise. Don't even say you're going to do anything if you don't intend to do it. And if you don't have the power to do it. And if you really are not uh, determined by the grace of God to follow through and do what you Tell the Lord. If you say, God, I want to I uh, be a servant of yours, and I want to be a member of the church, and I want to uh, do my best to be in the house of God, and I want to do my best to, or if I'm called to teach a class, I want to do my best in that part, part or sing in, in the services, or be a special person in some special work in the church, or 
whatever it is, or especially if you say, uh, Lord, I'm going to try to preach your word. I, I, I know you've called me to preach and I'm willing to put that first in my life. Well, don't promise if you don't intend to do it. There's been many a young man that said, well, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a preacher on the spur of the moment in the excitement of a of a, of a spiritual service and they end up never going. And maybe it's better they didn't, but uh, don't make those promises if you don't intend to do it. Don't make those promises. When I was surrendered to preach, well, uh, I was about 21, 22 years old. And the uh, Lord called me to preach and I decided that's what I was going to do. And I've had a hard time getting through a lot of things, but, but by the grace of God, I at least was sincere enough about my promise to continue to do it. And I think that if you make God a promise, you ought to be willing to do it. And uh, I know that many have made those promises and will not carry through with them. I had one young preacher, and he was a good preacher. He'd surrendered to priest, and he was ordained and ready to go, and had pastored a church or two. And one Sunday morning, he says that he told the Lord if he didn't have so many... He, he set the number of the people. So, so many people walked the aisle... Come for salvation or baptism or church membership that Sunday morning. Said he set a number. I don't know what the number was. He had a big church in Florida, and he says if they don't if they don't have that many, I'm going to quit preaching. Well, that's pretty foolish, isn't it? I mean, that's not using your head. God said, preach the word and be what instant in season and out of season, reprove and rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He didn't say give up when you have the. To, uh, going gets a little rough. You don't do that. Amen. And uh, so, if you're going to make a vow to God, it says, Better is it thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. He says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. See? Your mouth caused your flesh to sin by making a vow you couldn't keep. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. In other words, I didn't really mean it. <laughs> don't back out on your vows. Say, you know, uh, yes, I made that promise, but I'm not sure that I really meant it. It was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? God's judgment will come into the matter. That's what it says. Look at verse 7. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities. In the multitude of dreams and many words there are, are also divers, various, many vanities. But fear thou God. The multitude of dreams and many words shows a disturbed state of mind. Did you know a multitude of dreams and many words just thrown here and there shows a disturbed state of mind? Then we find that in verse 8, it says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth. And there be higher than they. God sees it all. And God sometimes permits these things to, ha to happen. He permits all of this. Oppression of the poor. Violent perverting of judgment. And justice in the province. Marvel not at the matter. Don't worry about it. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth. And there be a higher than they. God is higher than all, isn't he? And you know, God, can make, God may permit it to happen. But the Bible says that we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And He is able to overrule all of the things that we think for the moment are just, uh, you know, unjust and not fair. In verse 9, it says, Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The profit of the earth is for all of mankind. It's for all of God's creatures. 
The king himself is served by the field. Rich and poor, even the king is served by the field. Look at that. The prophet of the earth is for all. Is the prophet of the earth for all of mankind? It certainly is. Is, is it for all of God's creation? It certainly is. And it, even the king himself has to be served by the field. In other words, if there was no uh, provision of the field, if there was not anything provided, the king himself would be starving, wouldn't he? wouldn't make any difference how great a king he was if God did not provide in the course of nature for the things that he would not have anything. Now, verse 10 says, look at this. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. You see that one? He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Never satisfied with silver, and the more he gets, the more he wants. He that loveth abundance with increase. He's not going to be satisfied either. It says, this is also vanity. Where do you seek your satisfaction? That might be the question we need to ask. Do you seek your satisfaction from the things of God, or do you seek your satisfaction from getting more silver and gold and increase? You say, well, I work hard and I want to profit and I want to be successful. Everyone does. And there's nothing wrong with that if you just thank God for what you do and for what, how he prospers your way. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with working hard. But if you think that's all there is to it, you're missing the mark. And that's the problem. Look at verse uh, 11. It says, When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saying, uh, the beholding, uh, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? In other words, the more they get, the only good they get out of it is saying, Look how much I've got. Isn't that something? But it says, When goods increase, They are increased that eat them. In other words, an increase of property is an increase of expense, too. Have you ever thought about that? The more you have, the more you have to take care of. A man that has a great big house has to have a lot of servants. A man that has a great big uh, yard and garden, he has to have uh, gardeners. He has to have people on the payroll, or he has to have someone to keep it up. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust is corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and neither thieves break through nor steal. He speaks of those that store in barns. My, I'm, I get really sick of my storehouses sometimes. My little, you know, I build a place to store some of the extra things, and then when that's full, well, you got to build another place. And and you know, most of it should be thrown in the junk. And you say, well, I'm saving it for the kids. The kids don't want it, friends. They want good stuff. They don't want stuff you've saved up. Forget it. Forget it. When they come in there, they say, what did mom and dad save all this junk for? Say, so we're going to have to have a dump truck to haul it off. And that's exactly what they'll do. They'll back one up there and all your treasures and all your good things, they'll load it in that dump truck and it'll be in the, in the dump pit by the time you get through. Think about it. And I'm just as guilty as you are. Every time, you know, I'll say, well, that's a little good too. But you know, we were raised during the Depression. We're, we raised up and didn't, we had to keep everything we had or we didn't have anything at all. And so, it's kind of inbred in us and, and uh, you know, into society to keep things. Uh, but there are certain things. Remember, we read in the uh, third chapter where there's a time to keep and there's a time to throw away. Didn't we? There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. And so, you can read that in the third chapter. So let's do realize that some things become uh, useless and worthless 
And when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? That's the only good they, they get out of them. The owners just look at them and say, you know, look at all this stuff I got. <laughs> That's not much satisfaction to me, is it you? In fact, sometimes I look at it and I get kind of sick of it. I say, I wish I didn't have so much stuff to fool with. Verse, 10, uh, verse 12 says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Improper use of riches. The abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. The sleep of the laboring man is sweet. He is without possessions, and yet he's without cares, and his sleep is sound and refreshing. He doesn't have all these things to worry about. The more you have, the more you have to worry with It doesn't mean you shouldn't be thrifty. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have enough to take care of yourself. See, there's a happy medium to all these things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work and try to provide for yourself. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't save up something for a rainy day, as we used to say. Because they do come. Uh, In fact, the Bible says, Consider the ant, thou sluggard. He prepareth his meat in the summer. Right? Go to the ant, thou sluggard. The Bible says, The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in the harvest and have nothing. So there's a flip side to that, isn't there? There's a side to it that we need to work, but we need to not be over-anxious. We not need to just store up. We don't have to make that our whole, whole goal in life. But we do need to consider that we provide for ourselves and thank God for it. We'll get to the conclusion down here in just a moment. We'll hurry along. Look at verse 13. It says, There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Can you imagine riches kept to the owners thereof for their what? To their hurt. Now look at verse 14. But those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. Those riches perish by evil travail. A lot of things can come. Sickness can come. Uh, the downside of the success story can come. You can find the uh, diminishing of income. You can find all kinds of things that fit the picture. But it says the riches perish by evil travail. It doesn't say state exactly what all these, all this evil travail is, but. It's gradually gone. And the first thing you know, it says, And he begetteth a son, and there's nothing in his hand. He doesn't have anything for his son. Look at verse 15. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. You're going to leave it all at death. And shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. You can carry nothing into the eternal world but what you give and how you love and how you serve God. We've said is a little poem. Most of us are familiar with it. It says, there's only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And we're all getting to that place. Sooner or later, you'll get there. You say, well, I'm young. You won't always be young. You say, well, I don't want to get old. There's only one other alternative, friend. Right? So you better want to get old. One fellow said, if I knew where I was going to die, I'd never go there. Verse 16, And this also is sore travail, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. In all points as he came. And what profit hath he that hath a labor for the wind? Look at verse 17. All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. The terrible mental anguish of the wicked rich. He cannot enjoy the simple pleasures of life. Now look. 
In the next three verses, we'll sum it up. Verses 18 through 20. It says, Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. God gives the necessaries of life. And men should be thankful and use them for exactly that. This is the result of his observation and of his experience. He said, of all the things that a man labors for, he should, he should enjoy, because God has given him this for his portion. It says, every man, verse 19, also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. It's a gift of God for God to provide for your necessary needs. For your needs. And you ought to accept these things as a gift from God. And by the way, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a greater gift we preached earlier before Christmas on thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. He gave his only begotten son. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Another scripture, but the wages of sin is death. And it says in uh, Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the last verse says, For he shall, he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. He looks for the things that are eternal. He realizes that all things of this life are temporal. He extracts all the good from this life that God has given him with thankfulness. And what more can you do? And all else is vanity and vexation of spirit. Well, we've covered two chapters tonight. We'll try to pick up with chapter 6 Wednesday night and maybe 7.